Hello and welcome to today's MMC Propcast. Now, over the last week, we've been talking about modern methods of construction with some of the biggest manufacturers and some of the brightest and most innovative minds in this space. And when you finish with this episode, please do go back and download some of the previous conversations with LNG, Ilka Homes, Top Hat, Homes England and Project Etopia. Now, today's conversation is with Kira O'Rourke, Director at Lang O'Rourke, the UK's only tier-in-one contractor to be really focused on MMC in any meaningful way. Now, the company's got a proud track record of investing millions of pounds of its own capital into innovation, into off-site manufacturing. And as Kira explained in our conversation, recorded a little bit earlier on, it's paying immense dividends for their business. I started by asking Kira about the role MMC and Design for Manufacturing and Assembly, DFMA, plays in her family's business. So off-site manufacturing has been a key part of our business and sort of the vision of Ray and Des for probably like 20 years. Um, but that all came to fruition 11 years ago when we were able to open up our factory in Steetley. Um, and that just, it's helped us to demonstrate that actually the benefits that you have around um, modern methods of construction. So when you make an investment like we have, it does change the way in which you go to work. So it's about getting our engineers thinking differently um, rather than trying to think on the job when you're on site, which you would normally do if you're doing more of a traditional format and just thinking on, you know, thinking on your toes as in what, what's the challenge today? How can we, you know, overcome this um, potential bump? What we've had to do with like the modern methods of construction to implement that, you do all of that thinking ahead of time. So it was yeah. a real shift in um, mentality, how you set teams up, how the tools that you give them. So it's very much lent that we had to go down a, a very much a digital um, route. So when we are working with our consultants, you know, you ideally want to be working from one plan on a digital platform so that when you get to site, you're following that plan that everybody signed up to and knows what their um, what their role is um, on the project. So I'd say it's a, it's a big it's a game changer and it was a game changer it's interesting now when you speak to the young people in our business that actually for them that would have joined maybe 10 years ago they say you know off-site manufacturing design for manufacturing assembly that's just the norm now that's what you should be doing um so it's had a big change in our business it's probably meant there's certain projects that we don't necessarily put our hands up to be interested in because it doesn't lend to the off-site manufacturing um, agenda and we will have those conversations in the business when we're looking at projects is this a project that does lend itself to off-site have we got a design what, what, team what is and isn't so what what tell us a little bit about the projects that work and that don't work because you've so done project, some you've done some really exciting projects haven't you so you, you've, you've done things like the crick institute uh and and the grange in, in south wales so there have been some some fantastic projects that you've been involved with that have had a really high proportion of, of dfma haven't they yeah, so we inside the business have a metric 70, 60, 30. So when we look at our projects, we say, can we deliver 70% of the product offsite? And the reason why we want to set that metric is because if you're able to do 70% and produce 70% of the project offsite, it leads to a 60% improvement in productivity, um, which means you're having to have less people on site carrying out work. And then also what that does is it lends to a 30% improvement to time to delivery. So when we're looking at our projects, we're looking at the structure. We're looking at the, the structure of the building. Are there ways in which we can look at this in, in a precast format? So you're also looking at facades. 
what you're trying to do is break down the components of the project and see what components can be done away from the site. That includes the mechanical and electrical plants. Um, so we're looking at all of those aspects and just saying as much as possible, take it away from site, make the sites as, as safe as they can be, but also create an environment where actually people want to come and work in construction because we're thinking about it slightly differently. So that's pretty much, there'll be, there's, there's the main disciplines to say that it's around the structure of the mechanical electrical plant. That's what we'd assess first and foremost. And and so what, what projects, um, so to tell us a little bit about the, the, the South Wales project and the Grange, what, what, what enabled you to really create such a high proportion of of that project off-site? Mainly the key driver around that was having a client that was open and wanting to have Langerwalk involved as early as possible. So that's a key driver. Working there with a design team that had ambitions to wanting to prove that off-site manufacturing does have huge benefits. You know, we're in a position now, we've handed over over nearly 350 um rooms to the hospital which as of the last two weeks that's a year ahead of schedule when we were due to have that building commissioned so um the biggest facilitator is having a really good design team and that's across all disciplines so architectural structural uh, mechanical electrical those consultants that are all pointing towards the same direction of wanting to prove that offsite does work. And that's what we've found on the Grange to the point where we ultimately believe we've got a blueprint of how you could deliver hospitals now, depending on their size, anything between two to three years. So we could be delivering hospitals a year, two years ahead of how they're currently being delivered to the market. And and what's, what's the response from the Department of Health on that? Because it, it, it strikes me that this... I guess some would some critics of of the off-site manufacturing universe would say, well, it's still a cottage industry. We're still thinking about prefabs, you know, all the usual sorts of cliched stuff that, that people come out with. So I guess, you know, and, and some would say, well, it's fine for Langer Rock to bang on about this, but if it's so great, why isn't everybody else doing it? So there's a couple of things. The reason why it's hard for everybody else to do it is because it does take a huge investment. So we as a business have invested specifically around offsite manufacturing, you know, 200 million pounds. It's one of the benefits of being a privately owned company. We've been able to push that agenda. I think it's hard for other um, contractors and other companies to get involved with that because it does take a huge amount of investment. And you've got to make sure that, you know, your shareholders, the owners of the company are behind that agenda. Um so I think that's a, that's a key driver. It's great to see that more participants are coming into the market. So for us as Langer Rock, we welcome those that come into the market because the more that do, it demystifies. It makes this methodology of delivery and construction not seem such a risk, which is sometimes what puts um, both the private and public sector off from taking um, that approach to, to delivering their projects. Hmm. I mean, is there a degree to which procurement needs to change to, to better recognise some of the outcomes here? Because, again, many would argue that procurement that focuses solely on price ignores some of the massive benefits that you've described around programme time, around cost certainty, and also, let's face it, around quality. Yeah, quality is probably one of the unsung heroes, I'd say, of modern methods of construction, um, because 
working in a factory environment, the level, the quality that you can provide to the product um, is just is second to none. Um, everything is tested before it leaves leaves our factories. You know, once it's left the factory, you know that it's got the accreditations that it needs so that once it gets to site, it's simply putting the products in place. Um, so the procurement route is a challenge. And I think there's a challenge on a number of things. Um, procurement route needs to be enticing for contractors and what i mean by that is not just to award them for you know on any particular reason but if there was a way in which the market saw that you would be able to either negotiate let's say or to have very sensible conversations around procurement of projects because you are actually investing in offsite manufacturing i think there'd be more people that are willing to um, partake in the agenda and wanting to push the market forward. The challenge that you have is when you have um, clients across all spectrums saying that actually they want value, but when it comes down to the actual process, predominantly price is the big winner, that does not lend itself to be an environment where you have the market saying, well, if I invest tens or hundreds of millions into a new way of working, I'm going to see the benefits. Hospitals mm. inherently across our um, across the country are having challenges of handing over um, critical care units on time to budget and to the quality that's needed. However, we've been able to do that. So, you know, we'd welcome to be able to share that knowledge so that actually, you know, we can do something for the greater good and actually bring in that sector to be delivering the hospitals that, you know, the patients should should have in place for them. So you'd happily sit down with, with ministers and explain to them how they could evolve their procurement strategy to, to encourage more of this investment? We would absolutely welcome that conversation because there's a common thread and they're now seeing what's the common thread. And it's not just down to us as the contractor. Of course, we are an integral part of making that happen, but it is about having the right design teams, the right consultants working alongside you that understand mm. where the challenges are. And that also, when you're in those projects, there's an ambition to keep improving because just because we've delivered a project now that's worked really well for the market, we should be now looking for the next generation. So what should the hospital in 10 years time look like? And if you've got contractors and you've got a market that is excited about innovation, who knows what our hospitals will look like in 10, 20 years time. And that's where I feel the market should be going because as a sector, we haven't evolved and we haven't progressed as quickly as we should have. Um, mm. And I think now is the time for us to be doing so. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that we've heard earlier in the week from LNG and from Ilka Homes on, on the Resi side is that they want to see government stepping up, being a driver for demand in those areas where particularly we need affordable housing. They want the government to say, right, we're going to drive that demand. And it, it strikes me from, from this conversation that, that the government could absolutely be doing that across education and healthcare and, and any other area of, of public sector demand by saying, actually, look, we're going to award that work and we're going to, we're going to really reinforce the need for you guys to invest by, by prioritizing people that have invested. And that, do you agree, could potentially create a scenario where more people take the, uh, you know, take the hit that you've obviously done over the over the long term you know researching and, and, and innovating and spending your own money to do that absolutely i think the government has to lead by example you know if the government is pushing that agenda and um, because of the the money that they have um and the spend that they need to their multiplier effect is huge so you know if and if and as you rightly said you've listed a number of sectors there if they're able to do that across education healthcare, you know um residential then absolutely that is just a clear example of 
you know, what the size of the prize could be. I think one of the, the challenges, though, is people have, and you mentioned this earlier around prefabrication, when this was done in sort of the 60s or so, it wasn't, you know, offsite meant that it was boxy. It felt boxy. It was small units that were put together. What we've demonstrated with some of the, the work that we've done and what I know that um, LNG have done is we've demonstrated that actually it does create open, you know, living. It's not like we're asking people to live in homes that wouldn't would be um, second class to what they'd get if, if it hadn't been uh, delivered by modern methods of construction. So um, I think it's quite interesting, and I think the government has a huge role to play um, to play in this. And now's probably mm. the time when we've got the challenges around COVID. You've got social distancing. You won't be able to have as many people on the projects as as were, you know, prior to this pandemic. So we're going to have to think about things differently. You're going to think about who's on site, what who needs to be on site, and actually how you shift that. And I think now is the time that the government has a huge opportunity to be leading by example. And it's not about rewarding those contractors or supply chain partners that have been thinking about offsite manufacturing, but it's to demonstrate that they've also got confidence in this methodology. And if you can go after that on scale and you can show how that um, can be done, I think it's, it would be, it would be a big statement. Hmm, absolutely. I mean, are there some entrenched interests that we need to sweep away here? Because again, there have been moves over the years, particularly in the housing uh, side of the world to try and drive standards up, to try and make homes more sustainable the code for sustainable homes you know, brought in uh, early days of david cameron's government a lot of these regulations were, were swept away by people saying oh we can't quite afford to do this so what would you say you know to, to ministers that are going to be perhaps a bit afraid about you know backing some of these these forces down um I would challenge anybody that says they can't afford to do it because we're a privately owned company and we've managed to do that ourselves. So I think actually what it is, is wanting the sheer will and desire to actually bring construction into the modern day um, as a sector. It, it really hasn't progressed. Um, you know, when you look at the similarities between construction and automotive industry, we should be thinking about it in that format. So um, I think it is it. It's a change. And always, whenever you've got a change, it feels uncomfortable. Mm. Um, and nobody wants to be the person or the organization that maybe got it wrong. And actually, when you're doing those changes, you're not going to find it. You know, you're not going to hit it right every single time. But that's mm. why you've got to keep going back. You know, our 11 years has not been plain sailing in offsite manufacturing. And I'm not going to sit here and say that, you know, we've not had bumps in the road, but every bump that we've had has made us go back and actually rethink about things and look at that innovation, which has got us to where we are now. So mm. I do think there are entrenched views. Um, but I would hope that, you know, if both private sector and public sector got behind um, the value that offsite manufacturing can bring and were to work with the contractors and supply chain partners that are demonstrating that value and taking, it's not a risk, but taking a bit of a leap of faith in this. Um, mm. I absolutely think some of those entrenched views will, will soon be voices of people that are just looking like they're resisting the way the market needs to be heading to. How do you, how do we, how do you sort of manage and bring the supply chain with you? Because I guess it's very easy to compare 
life in aviation and aerospace and like you know it's a question we put to rosie too good was whether she'd still be in the aviation world right now i think she's probably happier in construction given <laughs> given yeah. uh, given everything but but i i guess you know the reason why those guys have been able to innovate largely is because the supply chain's a lot narrow isn't it and they they depend on the finance from from the from the top guys and that that keeps everything within its own micro universe a little bit more whereas you guys uh, and, and people in in this world have got you know many hundreds of different parties all across the sphere. So, is there a case? How, how do you bring the supply chain with you on this journey? So, I think there's a couple of things in that. Um, first of all, when we are engaging with our clients, we're asking to be having as early as engagement as we possibly can. So, you know, ideally, you'd love to be in a concept stage as a contractor, so you could help shape the design of that building so that the building that's being designed is a building that can actually be constructed. Realistically, we might get in at, you know, earlier stage two, maybe stage three. Um, and then what we do differently in Silanga Rock is we bring our supply chain partners with us. So we're always talking to them about our pipeline so they can actually see um, the work that's, that we're actually going after. And it, it's mm. about treating them as that. It's a partner. It's not just suddenly Langer Rook have won a project. Now, supply chain, can you just come in and price this? We absolutely actively ask for dialogue with them. We look at the designs that we've got. We work collaboratively. We ask them, look, is there a different way that we can approach this? Or maybe we've got a, a challenge on the structure and actually having a conversation with your list supplier really early on unlocks something. So rather than doing things in silos, you bring them you bring them all in together and i think one thing that's slightly unique about langer rock is you know our history is we were part of the supply chain before yeah. we became langer rock so we haven't actually forgotten about where we came from so we absolutely welcome that conversation and for me it's very simple and it's you know it's having a valuable relationship with your supply chain partners um unfortunately because of the stresses we've seen in the market the numbers of supply chain partners that you can work with is you know it is shrinking so whilst that's not ideal there are elements of that that means actually there's a smaller pool for us to have to engage with um and you know it's in times like this though working with the supply chain partners is really valuable because for them they need to see that pipeline they need to see where that work's coming from so that they can continue to make those investments yeah yeah absolutely um and we talked a bit about sustainability but let, let's go into that a little bit more because it's an area where the architecture uh, architectural let's try and speak for once the architectural profession has been very vocal about this they've been on all sorts of climate marches which again you don't see many contractor businesses getting out there and protesting in westminster about the environment um mm. but clearly there's a huge opportunity here isn't there to reduce waste to use uh a, you know a lot less uh toxic to use many less toxic materials and, and generally uh move our whole economy towards uh, more of a zero carbon footing so is there an education process that needs to occur here with some of the wider design community to get uh you know to get them more on board with this because ultimately the, the more people you've got singing off the same hymn sheet the easier presumably it becomes because as, as you've explained having that early dialogue and being there at stage one stage two is, is absolutely critical for your approach isn't it yes um yeah i would agree it it, it is really important i think before 
us as a contractor comes out with a sustainability agenda, I think we actually need to just understand where we are today. And actually, sustainability in this market has meant something very different five years ago than it does here today when you're looking at the inputs that's going into buildings and the materials that are being used and the, and, and the waste. So what we're doing inside Langerock is we're assessing where we are. And actually, really, because of our offsite, we've probably had a sustainability agenda without necessarily actively putting that label on there. So we're just trying to find out where is our base. And then we need to set the ambitions of where we want to go because there are ways in which you can look at different product sets that you have inside buildings around the frames or facades and actually looking at the materials that you're using. If you're looking at residential, you know, if you're a particular product, if you're looking at dry lining, is there a way actually if we were to do the dry lining in a factory, does that mean there's less waste on site that's just going into a skip that then is just, you know, um, going somewhere that you know has no use so i think there's elements but what we need to just do is get that landscape first and then see all the different components and as well for me for this to be a successful agenda you can't go after everything which may not necessarily satisfy the clients whether it be private or public but if you try and go after everything we might actually achieve nothing if you break this down into bite sizes there's every chance we'll be able to, to succeed. And also, again, like everything, it's going to take investment. So that investment, I personally don't think, should just sit with the contractors and the supply chain partners. It has to be everybody in this together, so consultants and clients all on board mm. to actually make that investment. So, for example, if a client wants to build a sustainable building in central London – they may have to accept that it can't be done exactly the same price here in this market as traditional. Is everybody going to well, yeah, buy into that? This is the that? thing, isn't it? When, when everyone starts saying, let's, let's, yeah. let's fill a building with PV, and which is easy to do yeah. if you're in Saudi Arabia, but less easy to do if you're in Islington. Yes, exactly. So I think well, if, it's everybody coming together. It can't just be at the footsteps of just one particular organisation. Mm. And, and presumably digital tools play an absolutely critical role in in measuring and benchmarking this performance. And it's something I know that you, you guys have invested in a lot over the years as well. Yeah. So how do we streamline that? Because again, the whole architecture construction community has embraced BIM, certainly on the public sector side, but it, it's not exactly swamped people so much on the private side of, of development, has it? No, I mean, Digital engineering, BIM, has um, probably been slower to, to take on than people would hope. Um, for those consultants that have, they've definitely seen the benefits. Um, not only It's not only from the data capturing so that you can actually have real lifetime data as you go through a project, but it's also some of those intangible risks that when you're on a project and decisions are being made, you actually understand the full impact. The challenge is, there isn't a standardized system to use. So there are different interpretations of, you know, the digital engineering. Um, now, I'm not I'm not advocating that there should just be one system, but I think we need to figure out a way that the systems can talk to each other. So then again, it's... It's a bit like in not, your house, isn't it? If you've got Google yeah. Home and you want the, the thermostat to talk to the other thing and you want it to talk to the TV and you need 25 different voice control things just to do 
you know, my, my wife's against all this for this pure reason that, you know, actually <laughs> even just turning the heating on proves to be difficult sometimes. And sometimes you're, you're quicker just walking over to the radiator and switching a knob. Exactly. And I think that's the bit we need to, we need a way that it's people can be individual with how they go about their work because that's part of the consultant's brand of how they and their people work. But when you mm. get to site, you need a common platform that everybody can feed into. And I think if we were able to overcome that, that would, that would really be a game changer um in the sector yeah i mean i guess it, it, essentially like android became uh, a, a a free-for-all uh platform on mobile phones I mean, that's exactly the same principle isn't it it's a it's yeah. a, a one-size-fits-all platform that's used on every single phone other than apples um exactly um so yeah maybe maybe that's something yeah maybe that's something that some really smart techie coding developer listening to this could could come to the fore with perhaps um let's talk a little bit about the residential side of things so one of the one of the most iconic projects you've been involved with was clarges mm -hmm. um which uh, which had a, a blend in it of, of quite high-end product and some affordable as well what were some of the challenges there in in terms of obviously developing something right in the heart of mayfair in green park that, that must be quite challenging yeah, so for the people that, that were listening to this that know me, know by any means I'm not an engineer, so I'm not going to get into the technical elements of that project. But the complexities at a high level, um, when you look at a scheme like Large's, was there was the Kennel Club that was actually in the position of where the affordable housing now is. Um, that needed to, to remain open whilst their new area was being set up so then they could just transfer. Then there was elements of the actual um, residential sector that actually the building itself had to be built in two parts. Then add into that the location, one of the busiest roads in London where you've also got local residents that don't want a, a building site to be going on um, the hours that you they, could be working. They don't working. want anything, do they, really, around there? Well, they don't. But, you know, obviously, you know, they've paid a high price for their addresses and a certain style of lifestyle. So having... Um, what they would see as contractors coming in, um, what would be loud and noisy and dirty and disorganised and is not very appealing. And actually some of the compliments that we absolutely did get from the local residents was the way in which it was built. From their perspective, they're not interested in the building itself or you know the engineering smarts that have got into it. it, actually how it impacted them. And for them to say that there was probably only one time, maybe on a Saturday morning, that they had to go and make a complaint out of the length of time it took to build that project, that's a real win because they were able to see firsthand how, mm. from an off-site manufacturing perspective, there wasn't as um, – the only traffic that you'd have would be lorries, but they'd be coming in at dedicated times because it always is just-in-time delivery. Um, yeah. And also the workforce, there wasn't as many people that were needed to be around um, to be able to do the work that we required. And then once you got to commissioning, then you may have some more people coming in, but it's all inside the building, so it's less disruption. So um, that's been a big – and also to be able to, to deliver – affordable housing um in that area as well and, and demonstrate you can provide an affordable um element to a building that actually doesn't compromise on quality or style or design mm. was actually fantastic to see yeah and fair place for british land for for, for going down that route yeah I think exactly it's, you know, absolutely as you said a bit earlier that the clients need to really step up here um i mean in terms of of you know kind of going back to your uh, i'll call it 
your DFMA badge. I'm sure it's got a, a posher name, but that'll do for now. DFMA um, is, is what we live and breathe. So yes. Um, but I mean, is there, but, but I mean, just, just rolling with this point, do you, do you think we should look to get to a, a place where almost planning consents can be, can be sped up or amplified or made more certain if companies embrace a high level of DFMA? Because, you know, most, most people wouldn't have a clue, A, what it stands for, B, what it means. Certainly most people being, you know, people in the, the council planning committees. But you know, if we can get to a point where a higher level of DFMA is something people strive towards, then that, again, is something that's going to encourage and incentivize a lot more investment. Yeah, I think, I mean, DFMA is designed for manufacturing assembly. So it, it's the first word there that is the key. It's the design, which leads into the planning. So for me, my personal view is we need planning to be a way where it's, I'm not saying standardized or it's generic across the country, but we need to find a way in which there is harmony across planning, across different boroughs and different areas of the country. Because when you're looking at either private developers or housing associations that have a desire to actually deliver a large number of homes, but every single application they put in is completely different and has its different mm. nuances. That, first of all, from a design aspect, takes away the benefits and the economies of scale of offsite manufacturing. So one of the one of the negative connotations is people will have a view that actually if you go down an offsite manufacturing route, every building's got to look the same. It doesn't. Um, something that I've something that's that stuck with me and how I kind of think about it is design for manufacturing is about standardizing the invisible. So standardize the structure of the building, but you mm. can bespoke the visible, which means that you've still got different facades that you can have on there. You can do different layouts, you can do, you know, different finishes inside the building so that you can meet the target market that you want to. But what we need to get away from is that every single building is designed differently. And that for me yeah. is if we could have that kind of conversation around planning and it could be done on a greater scale at one go, that's when the providers of the housing will get huge economies of scale. Mm. No, absolutely. So look, let, let's bring it to a close. Well, one final question for you, Kira. What, you know, what would you like the government to do right now? Because there's a clear opportunity to move things forward. And obviously uh, this series of, of MMC week, as we're calling it with different different parties, uh, and different companies, we're we're trying to almost bring out, um, you know, some some shared ideals that we'd all as a sector like to further the pol the political and policy agenda with. So, from from Langerock's perspective, if there are you know one or two or even three asks for the various ministers, what would they be? What do you think could could make a real step change in a in a short space of time here? So, I think the first one for me would be to look at their capital projects they've got and actually maybe look at the procurement of those capital projects and see is there a way in which coming out of COVID, is there a way they can lead by example to demonstrate that they, they want to get behind the agenda of modern methods of construction, so DFMA. That would be the first. So that can be both across any sector and maybe it's just one sector they pick but have a clear agenda around that. So whether it is hospitals or whether it's schools or whether it's residential. If it was to be residential, I think there needs to also be a sensible conversation with the housing associations. You know, they've got current stock that they're having to go back and, you know, look at the cladding on those um on those buildings and those projects, which is obviously causing a huge constraint on them and a financial resource. So I think the government needs to help them to continue to do that, but also help stimulate them to go and do new projects, but also help them and entice them 
to actually want to go down the DFMA route, so the offsite manufacturing, because the old model hasn't worked. So we need to look at a new model. So that would be, I think that's an area that I think should have um, an element of focus, especially for me. And I, I sit here now in, in the wake of COVID, where you've got a number of people that are having to just stay in their apartments. I think absolutely we should be looking at the quality that we provide for people if there's an environment where, you know, the way people interact with each other might slightly change. We should be making sure that people have homes that they are happy to be staying in for, you know, longer period of time than they normally would have been. I'm not saying it's going to stay as it is now. Um, mm. So I think just generally for me, it is making sure that they lead by example and use this opportunity, especially with social distancing. We're going to have to think about a different way in which we deliver and they have to lead by example. So thanks very much there to Kira O'Rourke. Um, fantastic analysis of, of the wider market. Lots and lots to chew on there. Let's bring in Mark Farmer, government's MMC champion for home building. So Mark, what, tell us why you think Langer Rourke as a, as a tier one contractor, why they've been able to, to do this uh, and, and yet pretty much no other business of their, of their peer group has done. What is that? Is, is it, is it braveness? Is it, is it, is it blind faith? What is it? Well, it's certainly being brave is, is, a, is a big element in all of this, Andy. I think, you know, what Ray um, brings to this is, is, a, is a really strong vision. And he started this journey a long, long time ago, over you know, a decade ago, in terms of recognizing where construction was going and the problems it was going to have. So, you know, he is literally a visionary in this regard. You know, he was doing off-site manufacturing uh, when it was seen as a real marginal play. And it's not been without its difficulties, as Kira suggested. There's been bumps along the road, but I, I think that the time is now coming and, and, and you know, the the faith that, that has been put in recognising that the industry has to change its ways uh, is going to get repaid. And I, I think, you know, the key thing here is it's about leadership. So the bravery has to be combined with strong leadership. You need to be at a, you need to set a vision. You need to have a plan. You need to stick by your guns, but also learn from mistakes. So you just can't be intransigent. If things aren't working, then you do need to modify your strategy. Um, and all of that, I believe, has been part of the Langer Rock story. But, you know, I've got massive respect for, for, for what Ray and, and Kira and the rest of the team have done at Langer Rock and what they've they've developed. Uh, and we're now starting to see that, um, you know, pay, pay dividends. And, and there's clear evidence that all of that investment and, you know, the other thing here is it, it is, um, you know, it's expensive. It's not just about bravery. You, you do need to invest. Uh, and people see that as a cost, but it is an investment rather than a cost to, to find a, a better way. And that's why, you know, things like um, the Grange Hospital have been delivered a year early. You, you're able to make a step change, transformational change in construction delivery if you just completely re-engineer the process, which is what Langer Wilk have done. And and we talked with Kira around the procurement uh, frameworks that government has, because obviously until there's some, you know, until there's a checkbox somewhere in the in the civil servants basket of clipboards, um, making any wide scale sweeping change is still going to be quite difficult, isn't it? Yeah, procurement is is a is a 
it's a really big issue when it comes to public works. So government spend it probably accounts for I don't know thirty percent of construction output every year. So there's billions and billions of pounds at stake here in terms of how government as a client acts and what it asks for and what it asks government uh, what it asks industry to do, and procurement's the mechanism by which that sort of the the, the the rubber hits the tarmac as it were and I think there is there's probably never been as much focus on questioning this sort of cost-led approach cheapest price approach to procurement that we all seem fixated by and it's going to be really interesting in the coming period particularly bearing in mind what we're going through at the moment with COVID-19 and potentially a new era of austerity and lots of pressures on treasury as to how it sticks to its guns of what it's intended to do in terms of strategies that have been announced around outcome-based, value-based procurement, balanced school car procurement. So not just selecting on price, selecting on value, selecting on quality. Well, yeah, this is this is the thing, is it? Because I mean, that's the thing. Anybody in the, you know, I think anyone listening to this and any anybody that that's not necessarily embalmed in the world of construction as you are will appreciate that the public sector should get the best price. But I think you know, if you look at the scandals that have followed around things like PFI, people are very, very weary uh, around you know, just you know, when when value isn't quite what it seems and, and where where things are hidden in the detail, where the public gets ripped off and where, you know, you know, it's like anything. It's like building a website as a business. You can you can get a cheap website, but you always have to pay twice. And I think there is that risk, isn't there, with construction, but on, on a massive, massive scale, that if something seems a bit too good to be true, it's generally a pretty bad deal. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I, and I think that's the bit we need to overcome. And it needs, it, it's a behavioural thing as much as anything. And it needs um, the people responsible for procurement as a function in central government, local government as well, actually, just the public sector across the board, but also private sector. You know, this is not just a public sector issue. This is a, um, an issue in private developers and investors as well, and their advisors. The, the whole industry has just got conditioned to the lowest transactional cost. No one's really thinking about whole life cost. No one's thinking about whole life performance. No one's thinking about defects downstream. No one's thinking about problems in occupying the building and putting things right. And actually, that's got to change because that, if you if you don't think of those things, it's a false economy. So coming back to the public sector, if you're selecting purely on capex, you're 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 selecting on the wrong criterion, and 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 that's the bit that's going to be really really interesting to see whether in a time when the public purse strings are going to be put under massive pressure in terms of the period ahead post COVID nineteen, can it hold its nerve and actually drive the industry towards delivering better by using procurement as that sort of lever for change, as it were. And, and and incentivizing much of what Langer Walk have actually been doing for many years and that move towards higher productivity, digitally engineered, more manufactured output. And and in terms of I guess some of the wider learnings from what Langer Walk has been doing, they've obviously focused not simply on on the shell, on on buildings, but also a lot on the M and E and a lot of the a lot of the engineering uh elements of buildings. Uh, and that that, that's something that it doesn't really get a lot of airtime, does it? People are very, you know, we, when we think of MMC, the default position is volumetric, modular buildings, you know, trickling along to sites on the backs of trucks. And that's what most people uh, associate with this whole debate, isn't it? 
Yes, I think that's that, that's that, that's uh, that's pretty true, Andy. I think you know what you've got in modern methods of construction is a whole raft of different approaches that you can adopt, ranging from volumetric modular, uh, which Lago Rourke actually happened to have a um, highly advanced solution for as well. But the 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 um, the main bedrock of Lago Rourke's DFMA design for manufacturing assembly approach to date has been a kit of parts. Effectively, it's a pre-casting system for structure combined with a different approach to how you put together the M&E, the mechanical and electrical equipment, prefabricating elements of that engineering services installation, looking at how you do partitioning uh, differently in a smart way. The composite effects of all of those elements of pre-manufacturing, um, you know, in some instances, cannot be far off doing everything volumetrically in a modular form. You're just doing it in a piecemeal way. And, and that is a, is a really strong armory to have as a tier one contractor, where you have the options to be a modular manufacturer-led delivery uh, vehicle, but you also uh, have a building system that is versatile and enables you to deliver lots of different forms and functions um, from a kit of parts, which is digitally led. Um, and, and if you can nail both of those approaches to market, then you know, that's, a, that's a really strong position to be in, in my opinion, in, in, in the period ahead. So it's basically a Swiss army knife for MMC. Yeah, that's one way of putting it. There's, you know, certainly um, different approaches. And you know, if you take the government definition of MMC, there's seven categories. I think this is a really important point to 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 um to make that it's not just about modular it's about panelized systems it's about mini mini modular systems like bathroom pods and kitchen cassettes uh, utility cupboards it's about innovative materials it's about digital construction and robotics and um, all sorts of ways in which you can just reduce site labor dependency and that's the trick here you're, you're just you're looking to make construction sites much more productive and, and Kira mentioned the 70 60 30 maxim that Langer Rourke used which is 70% of the job built off site 60% productivity improvement 30% time improvement you know we're now starting to see the evidence of that that's not just a throwaway line anymore. That is based on evidence from completed projects and comparisons to you know traditional business as usual. So thank you again, Mark Farmer, the government's MMC champion, and also a big thanks to Kira O'Rourke from Lang O'Rourke talking extensively there about the role that her family's business has played in in investing heavily into the off-site manufacturing agenda over the last 20 years so uh, that's the end of this week's uh, series of prop casts focusing on MMC I've been Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting please do head to Apple Podcasts to Spotify or to SoundCloud or PropertyWeek.com to listen back to some of the other interviews that we've done with Ilka Homes LNG Modular Homes Etopia Homes England and Top Hat over the last few days and again we've been joined by Mark farm on each of those you can subscribe to propcast that's p-r-o-p cast propcast uh by heading to apple or spotify and and clicking on a button uh, and and if you've got any ideas or requests for things that you'd like to cover or you'd like to come and be interviewed on one of these sessions please just do get in touch with me but thanks very much for listening thanks to all our guests and hopefully hear you again soon take care bye-bye